This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, hundreds of thousands of Americans have died from COVID-19, and the U.S. economy remains crippled. But China is nearly COVID-free and economically growing. A new book explores the vast differences in how the two social systems performed during the contagion. And Major League Baseball claims it is embracing the old Negro Leagues. However, a professor of Afro-American studies says something's wrong with that picture. But first, Paul Clark is a doctoral candidate in African and American studies who's been doing research on labor, policing, and privatization in South Africa. Before the end of white minority rule, South Africa was a world leader in mass incarceration, along with the Soviet Union and the United States. Clark says South Africa continues to hold that dubious distinction. I think they do. I mean, South Africa, the country that I look at most closely, leads the African continent in terms of the number of people who currently have incarcerated. Before the coronavirus pandemic, the number was around uh, 155,000 people in prison, which puts it at per capita rate that exceeds many other countries in the world. Um, I think it's around top five currently. I'm not a precisely sure about the numbers of the Soviet Union, but of course the United States far outstrips any other country by an order of magnitude. However, in terms of police killings, South Africa outstrips the United States. That's right. I've looked at statistics from the last five years, and South African police kill about between two and three times as many people per capita than American police do, which is quite a striking number considering, of course, the level of brutality that we've come to understand that the American police exercise on a daily basis. And has that been the case since the end of the apartheid regime and of the transition to black majority rule in 1994? It's difficult to tell the precise level of police killings that occurred under apartheid because so many killings by the police were covered up. Some of those killings were discovered or brought to light during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of the 90s, but in large part, many of those killed by the police under apartheid remain faceless. They remain uncounted. As the transition happens into the post-apartheid period, it's clear that while there's an effort to reform policing along what is called human rights lines, the level of police killings do not taper off significantly in the post-apartheid period. There's not a kind of a moment where police brutality significantly is reduced. So it's hard to say exactly that the relationship between killings under apartheid numerically and killings in the post-apartheid, but we do know that globally, South Africa ranks extremely high in terms of killings per capita. Clearly, there's been no overhaul of the economic system in South Africa, no economic transformation since the fall of apartheid, and it appears there's been no overhaul of the criminal justice system either. 
Yeah, so as I mentioned, there was an effort at reform that happened in the early 1990s. And I think it actually was a good faith effort at reform within the police. So you had a changing of personnel, so the bringing in of non-white personnel at the highest level to control the police, as well as a move towards what's called human rights policing. So tactics that were in keeping with the country's constitution, which is considered one of the most progressive in the world. However, when you have a society with the levels of inequality and poverty that South Africa does, it ranks among the highest in terms of wealth inequality globally. You quite simply cannot have a policing system that does not rely on levels of brutality and lethality to control those levels of social disorder. So they really do go hand in hand. The the ANC's failure to address deep and grinding poverty in the country that emerges from apartheid produces a situation where their efforts at reforming policing fail. You give someone a gun, a fist, and you tell them, you know, you need to control this level, this particular area of the city that has high levels of poverty, people who are forced into criminalized economies. And of course, you produce police killings, you produce police brutality, you produce uh, disproportionate incarceration of the poorest of the population. And one of the most dramatic aspects of the South African criminal justice system is the wholesale roundup of immigrants. Certainly, yeah. So this is this is something that has happened throughout the post-apartheid period, where police stage highly spectacularized raids in parts of downtown Johannesburg, places like Hillbrow, which are associated with immigrants from across the African continent. And they essentially, hundreds of police pour into these areas. They go through high-rise buildings, searching people for their immigration documentation, often pulling them out of their homes and sending them to immigration detention camps, the most infamous being Lindela Detention Camp, which has had documented human rights abuses for decades now. Most recently, there's been an uptick in places like Johannesburg of these spectacular raids. And what's quite notable, at least for me, is the broadcasting of these raids on live streams on Twitter uh, as a way of proving that the South African government is serious, one, about crime, about controlling what they would call criminality, but also serious about cracking down on illegal, so-called illegal immigrants who they blame for many of the issues associated with crime. These roundups of immigrants appear to have a high level of popular support. They do. They do. Yeah. So South Africans have a deep fear of crime, which is often associated, as I said, with immigrant populations. And the presumed solution to issues of crime is understood to be more and more police. Well, many of these immigrants come from neighboring Zimbabwe, although there are immigrants from all over the continent in South Africa. Yes, that's true. People coming from places like Congo, Mozambique, these histories of immigration go well into the pre-apartheid period around the turn of the century when Johannesburg itself was founded. Many people from rural communities across Southern Africa came to Johannesburg to work in the mines for very low wages, under very poor working conditions. And those migration patterns have continued to the present day, especially as 
conflict and economic instability in parts of Southern Africa has driven emigration to South Africa, which is seen as one of the places that you can make a life and gain some sort of economic foothold for yourself. However, given the the kind of austerity program that the ANC government has led, or rather continued from the apartheid period to the post-apartheid period, there's a perception that there's not enough wealth to go around and that those South Africans who've been locked out of economic prosperity see immigrants as a threat to their own uplift in the post-apartheid period. So there's any number of myths or really libels against immigrants that they're that they're involved in drug trafficking, in sex trafficking, et cetera. But most people coming from places like Zimbabwe, from Nigeria, from Somalia, really are just trying to scratch their living out in really very difficult situations. Yes, South Africa is one of the world's centers for the drug trade, and most of it is indigenous, that is, it's not run by migrants to South Africa. That's true, yes. So um, much like in the U.S. where it's shown that immigrants have lower, a lower propensity to commit crimes than so-called natives in the U.S., there's a similar situation happening in South Africa where much of the drug trafficking happens through South African networks. So what do these high levels of incarceration and of police killings of citizens, what does that say about the nature of the Black majority regime? It's a good question. I think what it indicates is that punitive policies like policing, mass incarceration, offer a fig leaf to the ANC government for their failures to truly deliver wealth redistribution and economic prosperity to the vast majority of the population. There's a sense that crime prevents economic prosperity and not the other way around, where if you you actually delivered something like a substantive welfare system in South Africa, you would see dramatically lower rates of crime. But the ANC, in large part, has forwarded this idea that investors from the West are fearful of investing in South Africa because of the high rates of crime. And like I said, I think this offers a fig leaf to the ANC's own failure to challenge South African capital and to really pursue a substantive uh, redistributive program. Now, of course, here in the United States, the demand for defunding of the police and abolishing prisons, those are dramatic aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement. Is there a similar movement in South Africa today? There are the beginnings of what you might call an abolitionist form of politics in South Africa. They are very, very nascent at the time, for the time being. The notion that policing does not deliver the results that it promises to reduce crime and to bring about social cohesion is very new to South Africa. It's only in the last maybe nine months that this, this idea of abolition has traveled across the Atlantic to South Africa. During the beginnings of the coronavirus pandemic, the ANC government ordered a lockdown across the country to prevent community spread of the virus. And what occurred at the very beginning was a series of police killings 
that attracted widespread public attention and condemnation. And this was really the first time, at least in the past maybe 20 years, that the South African public started to reevaluate the country's priorities vis-a-vis crime policy. And I think this is open space for social movements to start pushing an abolitionist agenda. The interesting thing about the politics of abolition in South Africa compared to the U.S. is that I think that strategies need to be tuned national conditions. So a demand to defund the police in South Africa runs into an issue of the government's overall program of austerity. So while the ANC government has increased funding for policing throughout the post-apartheid period, more recently in response to the huge holes that corruption has created in the public fiscus, the ANC has started to cut police funding in order to solve this financial crisis that the state is facing. A demand for defunding the police, if it's not paired with jobs and housing, will just exacerbate this downward spiral of austerity. Right? So there needs to be a, a real challenge to the ANC's hegemonic line, that there's not enough money to go around, that social spending and government spending more generally needs to be cut. Otherwise, what you'll see is a acceleration of privatized forms of policing, which already have a large foothold in South Africa today. So rather than the public police doing things like crowd control or doing things like strike breaking, increasingly those tasks will be done by private police, right? So if you can't reduce the levels of immiseration in the country that drive crime, defunding the police without increasing people's livelihoods, ability to make lives, will not effectively abolish policing in South Africa. It will privatize it. Well, do any of the opposition parties have planks on de-escalation of police repression and shrinking of the prison system? What's striking about South Africa today, and this is true of many countries, I think, across the world, is how weak the political opposition is. Much of the population is deeply dissatisfied with the last 20 years of ANC rule, and yet the political parties, the other options that they have are quite poor. So the right of the ANC, we have the Democratic Alliance, which has turned towards a form of white identity politics, turned away from any sort of substantive welfare-based politics into a politics of grievance, which is quite familiar in other countries around the world. On the left of the ANC, we have the economic freedom fighters led by a former ANC cadre, Julius Malema. And there's quite serious allegations against the the EFF of regularized corruption. And it's seen in many ways as a vanity exercise for the political leaders of the ESF to enrich themselves. So in many ways, the opposition to the ANC is just not credible. That being said, the ESF has, when it's been politically advantageous to themselves, criticized, they have criticized the police, but often in a very self-serving way. So 
they've criticized the police when they've perceived the police to single them out in their protests and political actions against the ANC. I haven't heard them really articulate a broad-based call for decarceration or reduced police funding. I think what is exciting about the sorts of organizing around police brutality in South Africa is that they signal not only a shift away from this long-running punitive mindset, but also they are experimenting with what abolitionist organizing looks like in other places around the world. I think much of the conversation and much of the thinking within abolitionist thought has been very closely tuned to the American political economy. While abolitionists, I think, are in conversation with people across the world, there's still an enormous amount of work to be done to tune abolitionist arguments to national political contexts like South Africa. Abolition, as Ruth Gilmer, who I admire, says, has to be international. And for me, in order to be international, it needs to be attentive to conditions on the ground in places like South Africa, like Brazil, Mexico, Palestine. If abolition can't work in South Africa, it won't be able to work in many of the so-called third world countries. And I think that sort of imaginative exercise of what does abolition look like in South Africa is incredibly important and incredibly exciting in terms of the innovation abolitionist thinking that it will produce. Paul Clark earned his master's degree in anthropology from the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. Veteran activists Sarah Flounders and Lee Su Hin are the editors of an important new book titled Capitalism on a Ventilator, The Impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S. It's an anthology of essays by 50 writers that explores why the United States has handled the virus so badly, while China was able to quickly bring the contagion under control. Sarah Flounders says the real loser is late-stage capitalism. The U.S. health system has failed utterly and completely to protect people here in the U.S. A quarter of all the COVID in the world of people who've tested positive are here in the United States. That's a staggering figure. And what's even worse is a third of the deaths worldwide are in the U.S. So it means even for the infection rate, it's more deadly in the U.S. because of the health care system is in such complete disarray. Much worse, I think, than any of us even knew or expected. The, the cost of health care for profit, of no national health care in the United States, and no coordination. Every state, every city, every municipality has its own rules, regulations, testing, not testing. It is a completely chaotic mess by every measure. The U.S. does not lack infrastructure in police, in military, in prisons. They can give you, in a minute's notice, a fingerprint, an iris scan. There's incredible coordination in the repressive apparatus that can coordinate 800 military bases around world aircraft carriers, 5,000 bases in the U.S., 
more than 2 million people in prison, and they have this information immediately coordinated. Do they have it for our health care? Not at all. Not at all. In terms of social programs, there's no coordination, no real overview, and no interest in even creating what's needed here. Now, this all then comes to a head. It's thoroughly exposed when there is a virus like the COVID-19 virus, which is a highly infectious, very deadly respiratory infection. Doesn't need to be, though. And this is why the book where we compiled a number of articles by progressive authors in the U.S. looking at what COVID-19 was doing in the U.S. and comparing it to China, where this virus has been largely at least contained and controlled. The death, the mortality rate in the U.S. now over 300,000 and soaring toward 500,000. That's the expected rate before the winter is out. And compare that to China with under 5,000. Compare it to Vietnam with 100. Compare it to Cuba, where there is a socialized health care, a national plan, national coordination, and a real interest in the health of the population, the results are entirely different. Doesn't mean it's still not a dangerous, deadly virus, but is it controllable or is it like it is here out of control? And that's the purpose of the book Capitalism on a Ventilator, the impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S., that, that really here we are collectively on a ventilator. And what impact do you think this year of COVID-19, a year and counting, will have on American political outlooks in terms of their faith in and their trust in and their loyalty to this capitalist system? Well, that is what the discussion is being consciously suppressed. The numbers were told daily, but the conclusion is not being raised at all. Although there is a crisis in people's fear, the average person has no knowledge of how different the results are in other countries. And that discussion isn't happening at all. And it's really up to the movement that pushes for change to push that debate and discussion forward. Because if we're only looking at the disaster here, the assumption of, and you could do a poll, the assumption of the average person is it's bad here, it's bad everywhere. There's no solution. This is just a mess. And the debate becomes whether to wear masks or not, whether to socially distance or not. You have a whole right-wing current that says all of this is irrelevant. But unless you see the difference it is a very one-sided debate, and that is the discussion that is suppressed. Well, in fact, the conclusion that the corporate media want folks to come to is that it's all Donald Trump's fault. Right, exactly. And, and really, Biden has no solution for this either. He has a whole task force, promises it will be different, it will be better. We'll have to see, but whether you look at red states or blue states, 
whether you look at Cuomo or in New York, Mayor de Blasio, the results here are equally disastrous. In New Jersey, equally disastrous. It is true on the one hand, there is no national policy and Trump absolutely ridiculed any coordination, any planning, gave everything to privatized health care. But would the Biden-Harris administration do anything different? They are committed to health care for profit, to its compartmentalization, to its completely narrow focus. This is true in the testing China immediately made available and the World Health Organization made available a very cheap and easy test that's used around the world, at least allowing testing and and tracking. Here we are nine months in and folks are still rushing around and waiting in line and waiting days and sometimes weeks to get the results of their tests. So the most fundamental, the first step is not yet coordinated It's hard to picture how they will really coordinate the vaccine, most of which won't be ready. The population, there's no plan for it to be really fully vaccinated until summertime. So in the meantime, this what's really a raging forest fire in terms of COVID infections and deaths will substantially continue. And the two U.S. vaccines that have been given the okay are both of the very expensive kind. That is, they're expensive to maintain because they've got to be supercooled, which is just what you'd expect from a capitalist economy and a capitalist-controlled government. Yes, they're both using new technology because then it's patented, then it's for sale then it's not available to the whole world. Now, in contrast, China, by the way, also Russia, Iran, Cuba, several countries are developing vaccines more on the basis of the old polio and many, many 200 years of making vaccines using a small amount of the infection itself, a minuscule amount, very much cheaper, easier doesn't have the same storage problems in terms of raw material and distribution. There aren't the same problems. That's the kind of world vaccines that are being developed. The U.S. choice was for a new high-tech model. I don't want to be against a higher-tech model, but we got to know that this vaccine, both the Pfizer and the Moderna, come out in only controlled batches. So months into this The U.S. population, 4%, and no solution for the 96% of the world population, no plan even for the distribution of vaccines on a world scale. China, on the other hand, is making plans for a massive global distribution throughout Africa and Asia and have signed the contracts with countries, 50 million vaccines to this country, 40 million to that arranging the charter flights, they're pursuing an entirely different model where it's not for profit, it's commonly available, both how to make the vaccine and the raw materials for the vaccine are available. That's a whole different approach to medicine and to life. Do we cooperate in the face of a pandemic or is the competition, capitalist competition, in the hands of very, very few people reached a whole new level because 
monopolization in healthcare in the U.S. has grown during this period. During the pandemic and an economic collapse, medical and pharmaceutical profits are at an all-time high. So what does that mean? It means they are profiting off this disaster. And by restricting everything from PPE to tests and now to the vaccine, it is a criminal policy which we pay the price. Yes, and we can almost be certain to see the oligarchy deepening its tentacles and increasing their wealth in this COVID economic catastrophe. We certainly can see it, and we can see it operates the same way in terms of the racism in healthcare and the racism at every level of society. Where is there the highest toll? It's among people of color overwhelmingly. It's essential workers. When you look at any hospital, who it's the maintenance, it's the security, it's the frontline workers. They're taking a heavy toll. And it's who can get treatment in hospitals and what kind of care in that hospital. The community hospitals are completely overtaxed. They don't have the equipment or the resources. They don't even have, at this point, months and months into this, with all the warning, already hospitals are announcing they have a complete shortage of basic PPE equipment. Many of the drugs even that have been shown to be more effective. Today's New York Times was describing why overwhelmed hospitals are in no position to distribute them because it takes too much monitoring. So just doesn't happen. Now, if you're in an elite top rung hospital, you'll do much better. So this is one other area where, where class, race, national oppression, they all come together in who gets treatment and what level of treatment you get. And it's a disaster in the U.S., and it is why the mortality rates are higher, even than in other countries. Now, I want to also recognize that other capitalist countries, when you look at what's happening in Europe with this next spike, this wave of infection, you can see that countries that even had full health care systems up until the 2008 capitalist economic crash. And at that time, part of austerity was to gut, to hollow out the health care system of most of the countries of Western Europe. And now you do see the toll that is happening, whether we're talking about Britain or France or Italy or Spain. Bernie Sanders' favorite social democratic countries in Europe also made themselves vulnerable through their own policies of austerity. They certainly did. They actually decided, we're just going to let it rip through the population. How's that for a test? Herd immunity. It's amazing that Sweden would choose a course like that, but it does show when capitalism continues to rule, even if there's social gains for the masses, they quickly, in a crisis, are snatched back. They're just unavailable. It's not the option. In all the world, the only major economy that's expected not to be in recession next year is China. What kind of statement does that make? Well, it certainly shows, you know, capitalism goes through crashes every seven to 10 years. This is a fact for more than 300 years. 
And countries with a planned economy don't have the same fate. They can, with planning, and this was true in China in 2008, which wasn't a pandemic, wasn't a a catastrophe of a virus out of control. But in the U.S., the money went to save the banks. And in China, with a planned economy, during the time where all the Western investment in China just overnight dried up, did the country go into a crisis? Were there millions and tens of millions unemployed? No. The state went into a huge building time with railroads, with subway lines, with new housing, with parks, with a very vast Green New Deal, an environmental plan that has really completely cut pollution in the major cities of China. That's what they did in 2008 in the face of a global capitalist crash. And today, in the face of a pandemic and an economic, capitalist economic crash, they're using many of the same techniques to immediately both restart their own economy, but on a strict basis. When you look at what were the techniques that China used, here in the media, they'll say, oh, it's just authoritarian dictatorship and people are just robots. China's plan was, and this was true from the moment of shutdown in Wuhan, to immediately guarantee everyone their paychecks and food distribution and a freeze on rent and credit card and mortgages so people could safely stay at home. What a difference that was. And then, yes, masks were enforced. Social distancing was enforced. All sorts of social events were closed down immediately, not over months As you could see here, where, as I say, every municipality had its own regulations. They did it in a firm way. The shutdown in Wuhan was longer nationwide. There was a shutdown over a very important holiday time. Completely, they asked everyone to stay in place. While, as I say, income was guaranteed to continue. That's incredible. Income was guaranteed. Even the Western corporations investing in China had to guarantee their workers their wages during this time. Take Starbucks. There's like 4,000 Starbucks in China. They had to pay their workers during the quarantine time. Did they do that here? No, there's no requirement on them to. But in China, there was, and they had to follow and pay their workers. So you see that the policies where a country operates in the interests of the whole population are very, very different. Even if they were using capitalist measures in some parts of the economy in order to speed production, get investment money from the West, and so on, they have control over those capitalists, and they have the state able to step in and pass rules. Vietnam did this very effectively from the first day of the notice of the COVID, they enforced both social distancing, a lockdown, but a guarantee to everyone of wages continuing and all credit card, rent, and every other bill put on suspension. So it really can happen. And the U.S. will predictably respond to its clear economic eclipse with a further military buildup. Well, that is certainly happening. And by the way, even in this COVID relief bill, you can see, you know, they'll they'll schedule, what is it, $33 million 
continued funding for the overthrow in Venezuela, but maybe we'll get $600. Maybe we'll get nothing. We really don't know. But always, always there is money to continue military threats, the continued encirclement of China, the cost of aircraft carriers and missile batteries moving to surround China, the cost of the trade war. One measure after another, expelling tens of thousands of Chinese students from the U.S. with no notice whatsoever. All of these measures are guaranteed to heighten tension. Of course, the the threats and the military buildup continues in terms of the buildup of NATO. U.S. troops of occupation around the world continue. See, there's always money, always money for U.S. wars. And at the same time, this laughable amount of COVID relief here. Will unemployment benefits be cut in half to $300? Will the $1,200 little thing given nine months ago, this time it's $600. It's it's saying to the entire population, well, we're going to try it now on half rations. That was bad. Here's worse. So this is a disaster in every way in the U.S., but it is a disaster because the capitalist economy rules They profit. They are really profiting off this disaster where it is a shutdown and really hard times for the population here. The shutdown in the U.S. is, as I say, it's so sporadic and chaotic and telling people don't travel while there's every ability to. Don't go out to eat. Don't do this. Don't do that. Completely unsystematic. And in China, life is back to normal. That's quite an amazing difference. So, how can folks go about getting this very important book? You can order the book online, or you can connect to the International Action Center, iacenter.org, but you can order the book online. We have a bit.ly account, which is bit.ly slash book. And that will take you to the link where you can order the book or you can order it on our website. You can also at Kobo.com order a downloadable Kindle PDF ebook version of the book. So it's now available. That's a big deal. But the big thing is to begin a debate, a controversy, a challenge that it does not have to be this way. This is the result of capitalism and a virus. And this won't be the last virus. This won't be the last catastrophe. We have a system that cannot deal with crisis and where the average person every day is doing much worse, but much, much worse in a crisis. That was Sarah Flounders, editor of the new book, Capitalism on a Ventilator, The Impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S. Major League Baseball has finally agreed to recognize the contributions to the so-called national pastime by the Negro Baseball Leagues back in the time of segregation. The historically white franchises are now, in a sense, taking ownership of the black baseball teams that they once excluded. Is that a good thing? We asked Josh Myers, a professor of Afro-American studies at Howard University. For me, it's not necessarily a good thing. If I think about it in the context of what's happening in the country broadly, first and foremost, this is Major League Baseball's attempt to deal with, I guess we could call it an attempt at reckoning that this country has undergone 
throughout 2020. And it's a feeble attempt in many ways because the idea that these Negro League records from 1920 to 1948 are somehow validation for what those players and those managers and those executives went through doesn't necessarily match what they actually had to endure. And so in many ways, the existence of the Negro Leagues was an existence that was fraught. It was always unstable because of the direct assault against the ability of these players to compete within so-called Major League Baseball, which back then was known as organized baseball, which, of course, means that if this was organized baseball, then all the other leagues, quote-unquote, were disorganized. And so there was already baked into the cake the idea that a black league was inferior and the idea that Major League Baseball can simply just turn around and validate the thing that they ultimately attempted to undermine. I think it's the height of hypocrisy, but it also is the case that their records will remain incomplete because the Negro League records were not complete at all because of that, because of the systematic undermining of the leagues. They didn't have the capacity to have as meticulous record-keeping as Major League Baseball did at the time. And so it's like bringing in someone for validation but not being able to truly speak to the gargantuan legacy because of your own history of racism. So it's it's an interesting moment, and you have to think, put it in the context also, I think, not just of the 2020 uh, reckoning, but also Major League Baseball today is one of the most conservative, in fact, probably the most conservative of all the major American sports. And as that has become clear, we've seen a decline in African-American viewership and participation. And so this is just one way that they are probably saying we might be able to get some support back from the African-American community. So it's not much of a price that the owners of Major League Baseball pay for their history of segregation. Not at all. I mean, if one could quantify it, right, this would be really at the beginning stages of any kind of, you know, restitution or reparative justice and it wouldn't, it wouldn't even come close to fully restoring that legacy to its proper place. Yes. You know, to me, it seems as if the white citizens' councils of Mississippi, those surviving members of those white citizens' council, suddenly decided that they were going to affirm the Black Freedom Movement and endorse Black progress and that somehow the black folks of Mississippi would have to feel that they had been made whole by that whole process. Yeah, that's a great analogy, I think. Because Major League Baseball at the time was very much like the white citizens' councils. They did not want to imagine that what was happening in the Negro Leagues would sully their national pastime, <laughs> just as much, just as in the same case that these whole, the racists in uh, Mississippi did not want to sully their state or sully their political system with the participation of black folk. And so the other thing about this is that despite the paucity of resources, the players and the fans, they never thought that this was a lesser league. They never accepted the logic, right? And when you see the um, integration after Jackie Robinson in the late 1940s, 
I mean, that was demonstrated. Look how many of those players who are stars in the Negro Leagues became stars in the Major Leagues. You know, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, Larry Doby, and then later on, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays. All of these people started in the Negro Leagues. And so that tells us that the star quality of the Negro Leagues was just as great, if not better, than the star quality of the Major Leagues. The problem was as most Negro Leagues historians would tell you, is that there were stars, and then because of the lack of resources, there was a off in terms of the balance. And so it was a very star-heavy league. And that goes back even before the Negro National League was founded in 1920. It goes back to the earlier leagues, right? And I think we should also raise the names of those early players in the late 19th century, some of whom actually played in the major leagues, like Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was considered one of the earliest players in the major leagues in the 1890s, I think it was. But he was also you know, a Pan-African nationalist. And so it's politics in many ways. They get occluded, right? And we sort of begin the history um, in the 20th century. But those earlier pioneers are important because they had to endure some of the same things. When most Fleetwood Walker came up to the bat, they would just throw the ball at him. They wouldn't give him a chance. And so he had a bunch of hit-by-pitches. And so that kind of drove him out of the league. And then at that point, begin to see the birth of these independent leagues. You know, uh, the black Cuban giants sort of emerge as the major uh, Negro league. And the other thing that's important is, hearing that name, there are a lot of connections to Afro-Latino baseball, right? You know, some of the Negro League players would go to the Dominican Republic and play and make more money. And, of course, there are many teams from Cuba that would compete in this. And so it was a Pan-African internationalist affair. And that's really important when we think about the role of baseball in politics. Yes, these Major League Baseball teams, in effect, consigned star black players to relative poverty, which resulted in the children and the grandchildren of these players not having the advantages that white players' children and grandchildren did. In other words, these teams owe a debt of reparations to these players and to their descendants, don't they? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And I think story of Satchel Page is very instructive here. Satchel Page, probably the greatest pitcher of all time, who grew up in many ways, you know, in the penitentiary system where he learned baseball. And, you know, he would come out of that experience and he would join the Negro Leagues, but he could never really stay on one team for very long because he was always seeking to make ends meet. And so whoever paid him the highest, you know, that's where he would go. And it's interesting because long after he had retired, the Atlanta Braves signed him, I think he was like 58 years old, and they signed him only so that he could get a pension, so that they could, his pension could vest. And that's really instructive because here you have literally the greatest, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, having to rely on this act of benevolence, if you will, if you can call it that, by signing at the age of 58 just so that he could get a basic pension. Only Satchel Page was really able to do that. Think about the other hundreds and thousands of players who didn't have that opportunity, who died in relative poverty. And, and so the, you're right, all of the lost wages and the lost salary as a result of this exclusion is extremely important to emphasize when we think about that. And not only that, Bob Kendrick, who is the director of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, I mean, 
I'm not sure, but I don't think Major League Baseball has written him a check to help sustain that institution, which they're struggling. And I think part of the parents of justice might be, you know, throw Bob Kendrick some money so that we can actually sustain the historical piece of this legacy as well. So how is Major League Baseball going to reconcile its bogus records? And they're bogus because these white players never had to play against black folks. How are they going to reconcile their historical data with that of the Negro League? Well, they're going to claim to use the research that has been done between the years 1928 and 1948, which is just a snippet. Some people will say the golden years are the years of the Negro League, and try to use that as the official record of that period. But there are a number of problems with that. One, the Negro League's records are incomplete. They're notoriously incomplete. And that's the major issue here, right? And so someone like Josh Gibson, one of the greatest hitters of all time, he likely you know, hit over 1,000 home runs. He's not going to automatically become the home run king because baseball's records don't have enough, quote-unquote, validation for that. And so he gets to be a part of certain records. He gets to be a part of certain stats. But the stats that he, of course, was known for within the context of the history and legacy of Negro Leagues baseball, they can never, quote-unquote, validate that because, again, of the racism that led to the inequality in in these record-keeping systems. Not only that, the problem, of course, is that the records also only include the games that the Negro Leagues played against each other, the Negro Leagues teams played against each other, which means that the actual head-to-head battles, the barnstorming tours that took place between Negro League teams and Major League teams, where they actually demonstrated the mastery that we're talking about, those records aren't going to be included. And those records, or those stats, are probably more important because it demonstrated head-to-head, like black baseball was not inferior. And in some seasons, there were more barnstorming games then there were actual games within the Negro League competition. And so those records are inherently incomplete that they're going to be using in order to sort of validate the existence of the Negro Leagues. And moreover, again, like I was saying earlier, what about the years prior to 1920 and what about the years after 1948? So people like Willie Mays, for instance, who came later, their Negro League records won't be included. And if you included Willie Mays' you know, stats from the Negro Leagues, he automatically gets elevated higher than some of baseball's you know, white stars. And so there's a really double move that's happening, right? Um, there's a validation, but there's not too much validation, right? There's an embrace, but there's not too much embrace. We're going we're to keep you know, baseball you know, white and sacred, but we're going to gesture toward inclusion. This is what you see in, in American society, generally speaking, like with, with Joe Biden's you know, cabinet, right? So it's the same, same concept. Well, it seems that this move by Major League Baseball essentially cost them nothing. But they now get to justify the fact that the public, and that includes the Black public in Major League cities, the public subsidizes their multi-million dollar a year profits with 
public funds for their stadiums and such, and for police protection, and for everything that goes along with operating a major league baseball team. Mm -hmm. And even at that cost, you see them struggling. I mean, if you look at the major sports responses to this past summer, you know, baseball, of course, lagged behind because they were struggling to sort of generate a response. And it was because of the players, because of the black players, that they were forced to respond as well. People like Dominic Smith with the New York Mets, many of those responses. And so it's, it's very clear. And I just want to say also that as much as Major League Baseball remains a conservative bastion of white supremacy, you have brilliant and vibrant leagues all across the world where baseball remains in many ways a black pastime. And so one goes to Venezuela or one goes to Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, the sport is still embraced by peoples of African descent. And that style of play that we are known for, black folks are known for, that Negro Leagues in many ways you know, made the Negro Leagues distinct. It's a different style of play. It's still practiced. And, and also the game is played with a kind of joy and a kind of energy that Major League Baseball, once those players get here, it's kind of like, a, it's always a controversy, right? So young players like Ronald Acuna Jr., who's from Venezuela and plays in Atlanta Braves now, and, and players like Fernando Tatis Jr., who's with the San Diego Padres, when they bring that black energy into the sport, you know, Major League Baseball, it always becomes a controversial moment. And their response, of course, is now you know, to try to embrace things like the bat flip or you know, bring back the stolen base and all of these different aspects of, of black style into the game. And so we'll see what happens over the next few years as those younger black players begin to mature. There's also Rube Foster. Rube Foster, who was a major, major pitcher in the early instances of the Negro Leagues. He's the founder of the recognized, now recognized Negro Leagues. He was a player manager for the, uh, was it the Chicago American Giants? and the business mind behind all of this, and that's critical. And then you have people like Oscar Charleston and Gus Greenlee. I must mention also the Negro Leagues had women players and managers before Major League Baseball ever considered such a thing. And so they were always inclusive of women. They pioneered things like night games because of necessity. And now almost all of the major league games are played at night. The Negro Leagues pioneered the minor leagues system, which was adopted by the eventual person who gets credit for integration, Branch Rickey, of the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, yeah, it's an indomitable legacy that we have to continue to honor. And it was always connected to black politics. It was connected to you know, questions that are being raised in black politics. And so baseball is not just a pastime for black people. It couldn't be just a pastime. Max Stanford, who taught African-American studies at Temple, where I went to grad school, would talk about it was on the baseball diamond where community was forged, where people came together. And that's really important when you think about what was happening in both the South during the time, but also in the places where black folks were migrating to. You know, that's where the original seven teams were located, in those migration towns and cities. And so the ability to create community around baseball was extremely important for black people's identity. And so I'll just leave it at that. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.